Hi, my name is Danielle and you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On this podcast, we discuss subjects that might be creepy to some and sometimes even frightening. Some of our episodes will deal with serious subject matter, while others will be more lighthearted. Please keep in mind that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover, just an interested party, and as always, listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone and welcome back. I'm Danielle. And I'm Michelle. And you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing a documentary film called Dear Zachary, A Letter to a Son About His Father. I don't know if anyone who's listening has actually watched that film. I think it was actually pretty popular when it first came out. Netflix was just beginning as a streaming service at the time and it was on Netflix. That's how I'd seen it originally. It's a very emotionally, well, I think it's a very emotionally devastating film. It, it is it is pretty, pretty bad when it comes to uh, emotional. And it kind of like, I don't know if it was for you or not, but it, it escalates. It does. As you and I thought the second time around, because I'd seen it already, I thought the second time around would be easier to watch because I knew what happened, but I actually think it made it worse because I'd probably seen it back in 2008, 2009, and I don't remember the movie, but I remember the story. Like, there's a lot of details I'd forgotten, but knowing what happened, I think it was even harder to watch it. Yeah, and you probably notice more details too as you go. Yeah, the documentary is made by Kurt Quinn, and he was a friend of Dr. Andrew Bagby's. The movie starts off as him trying to document his friend's life because as we find out in the beginning, Dr. Andrew Bagby has been murdered. What kind of pushed Kurt to do this film is that he was talking to another friend of uh, Andrew's and found out that, that Andrew liked photography. And Kurt was a longtime friend. They were like, I think they met in like the first grade or the fourth grade. They were really young. And he didn't know that Andrew enjoyed photography. So he was like, well, let me find out more about my friend. So he would, he was a filmmaker. So he wanted to travel around and basically talk to all kinds of different people that knew Andrew and just find out everything there was to find out about him. The film is very well done too. I think the way that he did it is kind of how it pulls the heartstrings even more. And he very much did it from a perspective of himself not, because he was like filming it in real time and he didn't know how this was going to unfold. So that's how he's presenting it to us as well. Like he buries the lead. So if you're not familiar with the story, you have no idea what's coming. And like you need to sit there with a box of Kleenex. Yeah, at the end there, it's a rough one. I am not the kind of person who normally, like, I might tear up at a movie if it's really sad. I don't usually full-on cry. I can't remember the last movie that made me full-on cry, and this made me full-on cry. That's understandable. As I said, we find out that Andrew Bagby has died. So basically what happened, and that we find out in the first part of the film, is they have that whole thing that they do in a lot of, whenever they talk about someone who was murdered, about, like, they lit up a room and they were perfect and they were all this and they kind of do that but also as he's interviewing the friends they also like laugh at Andrew about certain things it's not all roses like they also talk about some of his quirks and how he wasn't a perfect person but he was loved by a lot of people yeah I remember they said a few things that were a little bit negative but in a in a loving way exactly like none of us are perfect we all have things that we do and like 
that's the reality of being human, right? Exactly. So they talk about all these things about Andrew, and then we find out that Andrew had decided he wanted to go to medical school, but in the first round, so he's in, I think it's in California, so he grew up in California, that's where he's living. He applied to medical school and didn't get in. And he ends up applying to Memorial University in Newfoundland and gets accepted into that program. Now through this, we're also meeting his parents who are And we can get into that a little bit later, but they're amazing people. I can't say enough good things about that couple. Oh, I know. I couldn't believe it. Andrew heads over to medical school in Newfoundland. He meets some friends. He gets acquainted with the city. And during his medical school program, he started dating a fellow student. Can we even point out for one second what kind of a change of pace going from California to Newfoundland would be? So Andrew's now in Newfoundland and going through med school, he meets Shirley Turner, who's a fellow classmate. Now, we find out that his friends and family aren't really a fan of her. They say that she was very controlling and had really inappropriate behavior. Yeah, even in some of the videos and the pictures, you could kind of see where it was awkward. Yeah, things did seem a little bit off. Um, You could tell she was very possessive. Like to the point, Andrew had been engaged previously and the relationship hadn't worked out and I don't think he was the one who decided to call it off so he'd gone through a lot of things with that so even his ex though was still friends with him and she said she was really happy when she found out he was dating someone but then that someone started calling her all the time talking about her relationship with Andrew which is a very weird thing to do. And comparing them and telling her that like their relationship was I don't know if she was saying it was real and theirs wasn't, or like she was comparing the two, even though the the ex is the one who left. Right. It, it was very, very strange. I think it just shows a lot of jealousy in the attempt to control the situation. Right. The other thing that they point out, and I don't think, I don't feel like this has any really bearing on it, um, but she was 12 years his senior. Yeah. I thought before I think they hadn't said her age but they were talking about the age difference and then I was expecting like way worse than that oh yeah like way I don't mean worse but I mean like more of a age gap the way that it was described more significant you know because I mean like men date younger people probably more often and nobody bats an eye yeah so that I don't think has any bearing on anything I think she was just a problematic person whether she'd been 20 or 40 like it didn't really change anything so Andrew was 28 when this started and she was she was I think 40 yeah the relationship quickly soured so when Andrew graduated from med school he went to the U.S. to do a surgical residency um, and she also went to the U.S. but she was having a really hard time getting her credentials Again, I think she was someone who exhibited a lot of inappropriate behavior, and I think that probably came out in her work as well. Yeah, I would assume. He didn't like the surgical residency, and I can understand why. I have a few friends that are doctors, and they talk about how much of a high-stress job it is, and I mean, obviously, so I can see how that wouldn't be for everyone. Especially if you have somebody that's calling you as much as she was. Yeah. So he switched over to a family practice where he really strived, like he was very happy with what he was doing. And we're getting this story both through Kurt, who's narrating things, and through his parents who are talking about it as well. Andrew was going to be the best man at a friend's wedding. This is now November 2001. Apparently he had invited Shirley to the wedding, But then he wanted to break off the relationship um, and was trying to kind of uninvite her, but she came anyway. 
And after the wedding was over, he dropped her off at the airport and broke up with her. Okay. I thought, I think I missed that little snippet because I had to pause a few times. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I missed the part that it happened right before that flight. Yeah, they basically, the way they word it is they say he broke up with her and put her back on a plane. And she lived like a thousand miles away, wherever she was in the U.S. wasn't wasn't close by. And two days later, she showed back up. She'd driven from wherever she lived all the way back to where he was, basically begging him to meet her. And a friend of his who was a fellow doctor told him, do not go meet her alone. And Andrew kind of dismissed it, like what's going to happen, it's fine. But apparently his other friend had sort of a feeling that there was something wrong with her, especially if she drove all that way and just showed up randomly without calling. He's like, that's not normal. Like, you don't do things like that. Right. And worst of all, where, and people didn't know this at the time, but he was meeting her in a state park. Yeah, that's a, it's kind of a red flag. Right. Like, if you, if you break up with someone and they want to talk to you, like, meet them in public. I guess in this case, he probably thought that she was maybe jealous and possessive, but never imagined what was going to happen next. I actually was surprised because I had no idea what was going on when I started watching this. And despite, like, I don't even know how I didn't figure it out, but I was even surprised at first when they said he was murdered by a woman. Right. And I was like, how am I shocked by this? And why am I shocked by this? I don't know. I don't know if I had an idea of what I thought was going to happen. Right. But... I mean, at the end of the day, there are less murders committed by women. Mm-hmm. And maybe he thought, well, there's no way. I don't think your mind goes there either. I mean, I've been in a relationship. Actually, it wasn't even a relationship. I think it was a relationship imagined by the other person where I started feeling really uncomfortable because I thought we were friends. And then all of a sudden, he started accusing me of cheating on him. I, I didn't know we were dating. <laughs> but he started doing strange things like he would text me at work and tell me I looked really good today when he hadn't seen me like we hadn't he was like an hour away supposedly so but even then like I did end up meeting him to finally tell him like we can't be in communication anymore I'm not comfortable with this but at no point did I feel like I was actually in danger so I can see how your mind just doesn't go there like you might be stressed out you might be a little fearful of what the person could do to you but like in this case As far as I know, no violence had happened, so he probably didn't feel... It probably felt like more of an emotional thing than a violent thing, which he probably thought he could handle. Yeah, right. That night, Andrew was supposed to go over to his friend's house, the fellow doctor we mentioned earlier, and he didn't show up. And his friend does say, like, if there's one thing about Andrew is he was never late. His friend, like, drove by his house a couple times. Andrew wasn't there. They work together, so when Andrew didn't show up the next morning, like, everyone got worried. And they play a message where his friend's actually calling him and saying, you know, if you don't show up or call me back within the next couple minutes, I'm going to beat down your door. Like, just FYI, if you're just ignoring me, you better stop. And then a little bit later on, the police actually show up to their office and tell them that they found they found Andrew dead in the state park. He was wearing scrubs. They knew he was a doctor, so they inform his colleagues that he's passed away he'd been shot several times I think five times times, yeah yeah and there was blunt trauma as well and immediately they're like go find Shirley like no one has any question as to who has done this right and you can see that pretty much right off the bat she's like lying to the police so she tells them she wasn't around she was home she was sick in bed and 
they check cell tower pings and see that she's completely lying. She was driving 16 hours towards where Andrew was and then 16 hours back. So she says, yes, I met him. And like, they find out she owns a gun and she says she can't find the gun. And then she says she gave the gun to Andrew. And like, it's just- She said he put it in the back of his car or something at the park. Yeah, so she says she met him at the park and then she gave him the gun and just left, which is like, what kind of a story is that? Well, for somebody who's supposed to be smart, she's not really proven it. No, that's true. So the cops, I mean, this is, 2001 i'm sure gathering cell tower information isn't super easy so they're trying to get this information to actually like pull her in and charge her and while this is happening she goes back to newfoundland one thing that andrew's parents say in the film at this point is like they find out that he's died so they head over to like collect the body have a funeral and they're just sitting there and they're obviously upset but like fairly serious and they tell us that their intention and obviously they discussed this because it was their intention as a couple to collect andrew's remains have the funeral and then kill themselves yeah brutal they say a lot of things in this documentary that are actually really hard to hear but i think it helps us understand the grief that people go through well especially where he was their only child and they had tried for a really long time he was like their pride and joy and then he's gone it's rough and I, th I feel like most parents feel would feel like that you're probably right but I don't think it's said out loud publicly very much so I think if we're going to understand grief and trauma it's something that is really hard to hear but it's important to hear and I think that's what makes this movie so important is they don't shy away from what they're feeling like they're very honest about it and I think that's what makes the movie so devastating yeah, that struck me when they said that, but it's also because I've always said that if something would happen to one of my kids, the only thing that would stop me from killing myself is that there are two more. You live for them, basically. Well, I mean, you wouldn't want to do that to the other children too, right? Right. But the feeling is what I mean, like, I think that's what most parents would feel. So Shirley's back in Newfoundland. They show all these memorials for Andrew, like in every city he had lived, friends gathered together and had memorials for him. His ex-fiancee, Heather, was actually studying in Newfoundland at that point as well. She was in medicine, and Shirley starts calling her and telling her how she's more upset than Heather because her love with Andrew was real. Like, just, again, super inappropriate things. She went to the memorials. She was, like, bawling her eyes out. But at the same time, everybody's like, you are a murder suspect. Like, it just... Nothing's sitting right. Nothing's seeming right. Yeah, it's um pretty narcissistic. <laughs> yeah, that's the right word for it. On December 12th, she's arrested and charged, but she's let out on bail. And then she announces publicly that she is four months pregnant with Andrew's child. I'm just saying, which is just another shock in this in this film. A big shock, yeah. At this point, Kurt, who's making the documentary, it was Andrew's friend, decides that this documentary is actually going to be for Andrew's son. So he's basically going to talk to every single person who knew Andrew and get that get their stories. Um, and their feelings on tape and be able to share that with, I guess at this point we don't know it's a son, but with Andrew's child to let him, under, or to make him see who his dad was and how much he was loved and how much 
Andrew would have loved his child. And at this point, Andrew's parents, so they're Kate and David, decide to sell all their possessions and they move to Newfoundland because they want to get custody of Andrew's child. They get really involved with the community really quickly and I think this speaks to who they are as people. Like it sounds like every single one of Andrew's friends, they were like surrogate parents to them as well. Everyone that talks about them is just highly speaking very highly of them and the same like they got to Newfoundland and made friends and got involved in the community and everybody just loved them well they seem like the most caring people too like do you remember even at the funeral um I can't remember which one it was but one of his friends um was saying you still have children Mm -hmm. which was really sad but also really beautiful yeah because he's saying like every friend that Andrew had feels like they were also raised by them yeah So Shirley has the baby on July 18th. It's a boy that she names Zachary Andrew. At this point, she won't let his grandparents have any contact. They file for custody. I think even their lawyer is in this documentary and super emotional. Like, obviously, she got quite involved in the case, very close to the grandparents. Like, she she was fighting for them. So they file for custody and basically had to negotiate And I think this is also something that's really striking. Like, they had to negotiate with their son's murderer. That offended me so much. Like, I was so offended for them. Yeah. Just to imagine having to negotiate with a murderer. But you have to play nice because if you rock the boat, you'll never get anything. And at this point, I think they made up their mind that they would do whatever it took to get some semblance of custody or visitation with Zachary. Like, that's what they were living for, they were working towards. Yep. They get granted one hour a week in a supervised setting. And you see baby Zachary, he looks so much like his father. It's uncanny, the resemblance. Yeah, looked exactly like him. Shirley would keep accusing them of different things, like keeping the baby too long and doing all these things. But basically when she did that, she was also accusing the supervisor of the visit of not being a good supervisor. So that never really played in her favor. Um, because those visits were being supervised. So the extradition hearing for Shirley keeps like going back and forth and it's really moving slowly. So everything always gets pushed back. They're trying to extradite her back to the U.S. Apparently our extradition laws to the U.S. are just kind of crazy. Like I didn't know that. This is just complete news to me. I feel like it should, especially with all the evidence, like she should have just been arrested and extradited. Yeah, there's weird rules though about that and I could be wrong in stating this, but I think I think that that Canada won't send you back if you can if you're going to have a worse sentence or if you might have the death sentence or something like that, but I can't remember the exact rule, but there's there's something about that. Yeah, and now that you're saying that, I feel like yes, if you're going to face a death penalty, they will not send you back. Right. Anyway, so it keeps going back and forth, but at this point she gets put in jail again and Kate and David get custody of Zachary. Now, there were a lot of rules that came with that, so they had to take a daily phone call from Shirley and they had to go back and forth to the prison every week for a visit. Let's point out that they were paying for this phone call, right? Yeah. Again, I can't imagine them having to sort of compartmentalize their anger and grief to be like we need to do what's best for Zachary and for us to have custody we need to follow these rules 
because those phone calls, like they play a couple snippets of them and you're like, I don't like, I don't know how they did it. Yeah, that triggered me so much hearing her being so syrupy on the phone. And asking them, did you put up the picture of Andrew and me so Zachary can see it? Like, how evil are you? Well, I even thought it was evil that she gave the baby his his name as a middle name. You, you just, you killed him and then you, you like... I don't know, it just felt like a slap. The other thing about um, them having custody is the fact that they had to travel so much. So the prison was two hours away. They had to go every week. And again, the weather in Newfoundland is not good. So they were traveling, I think this was like November, December, December, January, like in just terrible, terrible weather all the time, which really wasn't safe. Like if you're, I'm sure as a mother, like you want to see your child, but you also don't want them to travel in terrible weather and put themselves in danger, I would think. Yeah, if you had any care whatsoever, you would cancel like, especially like during a blizzard or like a bad storm. So Shirley's in prison for about two months. And then there's this whole part in the film, and I'm not going to go into great detail about it, but basically she writes to her former judge about how to essentially, right, I don't have the the right legal terms, but how to write like a plea to get out of prison. And the judge explains what she needs to do. And she does it. And appears in front of a judge who essentially says, oh, she was violent, like her crime was violent, but she took care of, in quote, the problem. So now she won't be violent towards anyone else. So it's fine. She can, she can get out of prison on bail. I don't even know how a judge would be able to say that or not. He or she is not a psychologist. Like, I don't know how you can just even assume that. At one point, the judge did say that she didn't present any danger towards anyone else like there, there was no history of it but we know later on that in fact there was she had what like eight people that had restraining orders against her eight people and uh, an ex who she tried to commit suicide on his front step and then threatened to kill him I don't know where the judge like where the judge's head was I mean I feel completely embarrassed about our Canadian laws also when I watch this documentary it's just it's not right. Yeah, this, this was just completely awful. So she she's out of prison again. And there's this weird thing, like at one point her psychiatrist put up like $65,000 in bail for her or something strange like that. I don't know yeah, what that's... the relationship was there, but that doesn't sound right. Well, don't they say at one point that he got charged for that? He did at the end, but... So she's out of prison again, and again, like... David and Kate Bagby are just doing everything they can to have contact with Zachary. There's phone calls where Shirley's essentially calling them crying, saying that she's no money for diapers and food, and they're immediately like, we're going to be showing up at your house, we're going to be, like, giving you diapers and foods, like, Zachary cannot go without this. And then, I mean, she's obviously just doing it for manipulation, because she's like, oh, no, I would never let him. But I'm just, I don't know, trying to get sympathy, I guess? Yeah, I don't know what that was. I think she's she probably trying to get money, really. Maybe that was it. Yeah, because when they said we're bringing diapers and food, like, she kind of changed the story of, like, she would, like, sacrifice herself so he would get it, but th- there would be other things she couldn't afford was kind of the implication. Yeah, so I think that's why she backed out. She must have wanted cash. Yeah, that's really possible. The grandparents are basically spending every minute they can with Zachary. Like, even if it means going shopping 
with Shirley, like anything they need to do to spend time with Zachary, they will do. So they were constantly in contact with her. You can hear David saying a lot, like, you know, we're going to have these discussions about custody and visitation through the courts. That's done through our lawyers. Like, we don't talk about that one-on-one. But again, they were putting themselves in a position where anything they could do to see Zachary, they would do. Um, Speaking on that too, it was hard to see those pictures of like Andrew's parents sitting by a pool and Zachary's in the pool with with, uh, Shirley. Yeah. Like any time that you would see those pictures, it was difficult to watch. They also point out that Shirley was getting really mad because often like if they were all together and Zachary got fussy or a little upset, he was always trying to get out of Shirley's arms or get away from her and go to his grandmother. Like he was very, very attached to her, which I mean, we've seen children do sometimes like they just they're kids. Sometimes they just want the attention of a particular person or have a special attachment with that person. My kid used to cry when I got home from work because she didn't want her grandmother to leave. <laughs> well, one of your your oldest daughter for the first like year of her life would not let anyone touch or look at her other than you. Yeah, or her grandmother. <laughs> but that also included like her dad. Like she would cry when yeah. he was trying to hold yeah. her. So like, these things happen. It's just kids. Like this is how they are. But she would get really mad and jealous about that. Yeah, which is what. Uh they say could have triggered other things right so on august 18th 2003 so this is just after zachary's first birthday the police leave a note on david and kate's door while they're away saying that shirley and zachary are missing basically the whole community rallies around them everyone is like very scared of what will happen and then we find out that zachary and shirley's bodies have been found uh, on the shore on the shore of the beach and it's essentially ruled a murder-suicide. While they're replaying the old, you wouldn't worry if we disappeared for a few days, right? Yeah, which is a line she told the grandparents like shortly before. Zachary's grandparents had to come and ID his body. And this is also a very devastating clip to watch because I don't even know if I can talk about it without crying. I'm getting chills just thinking about it. So obviously the whole community is devastated. We find out that in July, Shirley had met a man at a bar and they'd had a few dates. And then the man found out who she was and what she was basically being charged with or was trying to be extradited to get charged with. And he decided he didn't want to see her anymore. She left 200 messages on his phone. This was after two dates, and told him she was pregnant with his child, which wasn't true. So she ended up taking Ativan and gave some to the baby, and she had him strapped to her and jumped into the ocean with him. All of Andrew's friends and family, again, are going through this, and it's like trauma, trauma all over again. Especially because... They knew who'd committed the murder of their friend. They knew who'd killed Andrew. Everyone loved Zachary. Everyone was doing their best to protect them. And the courts and the system who should have been trying to protect him as well just completely failed him. Yeah, it was that was just so embarrassing and disgusting when it comes to the 
Canadian criminal justice system. And at this point, we see, so Kurt's talking to David and Kate Bagby and asks them if they had the chance, would you have done anything different? And David says, I would have killed her. Again, like they don't pull back on anything. They show us the raw emotion and anger in this in this documentary, which is very difficult to watch. And he talks about the fact that they he had like he had a plan in his head um, because he wanted to protect Zachary. He had a plan. He thought about it. Um, decided not to act on it because they were told that the court moves slow. Just give it time. So he thought the right thing would happen. But him, or David and Kate had actually also had also discussed kidnapping Zachary and had a whole plan in place, but they realized like, they're on an island. Newfoundland, you can't get off Newfoundland just like that. No. So you have to take a boat, a ferry, or a plane, and either way, like the plan probably would have failed. They probably would have been found out pretty quickly. Well, it was a high-profile case, too. And they're also talking about like what kind of life would we have lived? Like We would have had to have no communication with friends, family. Zachary never would have known who he was. We could, couldn't have told him. So again, they had a plan. They had thought all these things through and decided to let the courts take care of it. The grandparents hold a press conference, which they were told they weren't allowed to hold because there was like a media gag on the case, but they do it anyway. And they decide that they're going to become activists to try and change the law, to try and prevent something like this from ever happening again. Kate actually becomes a child advocate to try and help protect children. They form a support group for parents and family members of people who've died. I think it was violent deaths. There is, basically they do look into, the justice system does look into what happened to Zachary. um, And they do come out with a few findings that, first of all, Zachary's death was preventable. And that custody shouldn't have been given to Shirley. Yeah in a reasonable world, right? You'd never do that. Things did actually change after, I forget who, I didn't write down the name, but basically like I'm assuming um, someone involved in government saw this film. They helped push through Bill C-464, which is helping to protect children in relation to bails and custody. So the law did change because of what happened, because of this film. And because of David and Kate's work. But like, what price did they have to pay for this change to happen? David Bagby did write a book about, about the situation called, I think it's called Dance with the Devil, um, and it was a bestseller. Now they're no longer living in Newfoundland. Kate did work as a child advocate for a while, and they had that support group. I think they've stepped away from that, but they did work really hard to change the law, and that's been accomplished, I guess, at least to a certain point. So, I mean, I don't even know what to say at the end of this film. It was just completely devastating. I feel like we should all watch it to understand that our law is very valuable, and we're all... All of us are responsible to understand what the shortcomings of it are and work towards making it better. Right. Um, I don't know. They lost everything. And I just kind of hope that they got some grain of peace or closure by being able to help other people. 
they do say in the end that they try to be as happy as possible and or I think actually that was in an article I read that they, they are trying to be as happy as possible. This is with them every day. The grief is with them every day, but they're still trying to live. And in the end, Kurt, the, the filmmaker, says that the film is actually for them. It was for Kate and David. They were amazing people. And he cuts back to all the clips that he had for Andrew where people are actually talking about Kate and David as well, about how they're amazing and they're loved and how much they meant to everyone. So in the end, he kind of made this film as sort of a love letter to them, showing them that they still have children out there, they still have people out there that they mean a lot to, that they love very much, and that they're very important to. So I don't know, this movie was just devastating. (laughs) It it was. I was just going back on what you were saying. Um, I think the, the documentary also, it just shows them that people realize how hard they worked to do the right thing mm-hmm. for their son and for the grandson. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if I would recommend for people to watch this film. I, I think it's an important documentary to see, but again, like it's, it's a very, very, I, I think it's probably the hardest movie I've ever watched in my life. So I think make your own call on it, decide whether or not you can put yourself through that. Cause it is very difficult to see definitely a big trigger warning and if you're going to watch it maybe uh, make sure you're in the right frame of mind if you're already in a it's not the right day for this one yes definitely that's all for today thanks to everyone who's been listening we hope you enjoyed this episode and are not feeling too devastated by it we are just going to hold a minute of silence at the end for all the missing and murdered people out there Um, just to try and remember them. So that's going to be done right at the end. Thanks for listening and have a good night. Good night.